0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm in Cafe Kick in Exmouth Market and I'm with Virginia Crisp. Hello, Virginia, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm alright, yeah. So here we are. We've got this strange little microphone between us. (laughs) It is strange. Now, what are we going to talk about? Oh, I you're just throwing
1: it open to me. I've got to decide what we're talking about. Well, I want
0: <laughs> us to talk about your work and you. So let's start there. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're beavering away at right now?
1: Okay, well, right now, um, well, I'm a, a lecturer at uh, Middlesex University in uh, Mutual Cultural Studies, the little bit of film thrown in for good measure. Um, and so a lot of my day-to-day time is taken up with that Um, but obviously there's the research side of what I'm doing as well Uh, not that long finished my PhD I had my Viva last November and a
0: Viva is like an oral defence
1: yeah Um, and and so other than that my research generally is to do with uh, piracy file sharing um, and more broadly to film distribution my current area of interest or certainly my PhD area of interest Interest. and um I would say that uh, more recently I'm becoming interested in other areas, but I haven't
0: sort of started the research no. in those directions. Let's, let's think about this piracy business. It's quite a romantic word, mm. and it's a word that wasn't used a great deal 20 years ago. Now it's used a lot because of piracy on the high seas, so-called, especially Somalia, but also piracy, so-called, in terms of folks who are file-sharing mm. or... Filming movies in movie theatres for sale elsewhere, or making illegal dupes of things, whatever.
1: I mean, actually, I find.
0: I mean, I use the word
1: piracy myself, and people uh-huh. use it in conversation, but actually, um, I do kind of take exception to it a little bit. Um, I believe there's a, a particular agenda in equating um, forms of informal distribution, shall we say, uh, to try and not sort of. Put too much of a value judgment on them as acts of yeah. deviance, yeah. and so by aligning them with pernicious behaviour, uh, you associate them with theft, with violence, with organised crime, and so. And it's interesting that you the mention that this idea of piracy is a relatively new, um, or at least recent, sort of reawakening of this term in relation to things to do with file sharing, etc. And so I've actually written to a certain extent about how this use of the term piracy, certainly not the only one, is about associating certain things of behaviour with
0: deviance, wrongdoing, and immorality. Um, Well, what is your take then? If I'm a key grip on a Hollywood TV show and my. I'm dead, and my dependents get money as residuals that help them to survive as a consequence of my work on a TV show that I did. But that payment stops happening because the program is so readily available through file sharing and they get impoverished as a consequence. Uh, Maybe I and my family... My memory and my family. I'm not so keen on piracy as you. Well.
1: And that's exactly the kind of scenario that I will use with my students when we're having these kind uh-huh. of discussions. And quite often I will discuss—I will ask the question—but quite often I discuss this issue with with my students who are filmmaking students. So they're making stuff themselves, but they're also um, tend to be quite heavy for file sharers, pirates in that in that sense as well. And so they always experience this kind of conflict between. Well, I like, don't want people to steal my stuff but then I also want access to stuff it's it's an interesting tension I think in the particular example you use in some ways if we could prove that direct causal relationship in a quite straightforward simple way then I think that it becomes quite a straightforward judgment. Obviously, I wish everyone at all levels of the production of a film or music or a TV show to receive remuneration that allows them to continue their job and support their family, etc. However, I think the situation is a lot more complex than that, in terms of who actually gets the money, who actually benefits. And and whether actually the the current anti-piracy lobby are more concerned with maintaining their own ownership and control Rather than protecting the creation of artistic works and the livelihood of the the kind of below the line workers as it, as it were, and that actually in this in that kind of in that kind of scenario, the exploitation piracy is a concept and it, as a thing that we need to fight against is used as a justification for exploitation as well. You know we have to tighten things and we have to make sure certain people get paid for things certain people don't in order to, to kind of maintain various power distinctions anyway. Mm. Um, having said that, it's, it's also important not to uh, romanticise it again. And the idea, I think, again to be a bit semantic with words, file sharing presents almost an opposite. Wonderful, lovely sharing, reciprocal idea of, of piracy as though everyone is just, you know, part of a big lovely community that's just giving people stuff and it's all about free access and free love and that's that's very much not the case either a lot of the online file share communities that i've looked at are very hostile they quite they've got very complicated power dynamics and are just as interesting as maintaining maintaining their own status within their own community as people who have power in the real world we say. So I think it's important not to romanticise about the sort of free access to culture either. You
0: know what yeah, I, mean. yeah. I guess there's also that argument that uh, for Hollywood in particular, piracy is the best free merchandising and free marketing you mentioned. Because it creates the Hollywood habit, worldwide, for nothing, and as people move into the middle class, and as they get older, they're not interested in piracy or whatever we call it, they like paying for things, and they want to get paid for doing things. So that middle-class transformation has a habit of consumption set up beautifully mm-hmm. by their prior uh, fantasies of free ownership everything because yeah. they get used to certain expectations. So in piracy, illegal copying, whatever we call it, yeah. is a great corporate boon gives a wonderful afterlife and allows them to moralise even as they're getting free marketing exposure mm. because they can crap on and what you've identified about the need to reward the makers of culture when in fact they don't want to reward the makers of culture, they want to be their usual indolent selves sitting around allowing their back library mm. to gather value. Right.
1: Exactly, and, and it's... <laughs>
0: Yeah, forgot about it. Don't worry, you remember this in the end, that's all that matters. Yeah, I remember you in the end. Thank you very much.
1: Um, and I think the the argument the promotion argument is, is often used especially in relationship to China, the idea that as soon as China sort of drops its uh, sort of censorship of western media, if you like to say that, maybe it's a bit too fine a point in it, but That actually, you know, Hollywood's going to very much enjoy jumping in there and and exploiting that market that's that's been developed through the piracy that they so um, um, vocally complain about. Um, But then I think also it's, you know, the promotion issue. You know, is, is piracy a form of promotion? Is it a form of theft? Again, in my research, I've certainly seen that it seems to polarize the discussion as though it can either be one. Or the other, and that there isn't a, well, actually a very, very complicated relationship with consumption, the, and really, I think it's a lot more helpful to think of of any form of accessing things online, um, and that's very broad. I realise, but. Um, is similar to any other form of consumption, any other form of shopping. And that you know, food shopping is different to clothes shopping, different to makeup shopping, different to wedding ring shopping. And that actually the motivations behind these things and the actions behind these things are all very, very complicated. And at the moment, a lot of the discussions are still quite polarised in terms of is it good, is it bad and, and often the good and the bad is, is linked unproblematically to the immoral the moral, and generally the economic rather than much else
0: so, one would need to think about forms of piracy, or forms of non payment for the reuse of goods, whatever we call it, yes. uh, in terms of particular consuming decisions, which is difficult.
1: Yeah, and also consider it as a, in the same way that we think about shopping as a, as a social activity, think about it as a social activity as well. It's about Creating bonds with people—it's about connecting with people.
0: Yeah, sure. In the eyes of the law, what do you do about that? Um, You know, the law has certain ways of dealing with shopping, which is shopping means paying for things, Mm. and without that exchange, we don't get people. Take them away. So,
1: I mean, that becomes incredibly complicated. I mean. And again, this, this links back to the idea that there are many different forms of piracy and therefore the way that you uh, uh, legislate against that also has to be sort of multiple in that, you know, there are the, there's cases of people watching movies on YouTube in 10-minute segments and then there's people sharing files within closed communities using like sort of BitTorrent protocol or there's, well, there's people logging into sites like RapidShare or Mega Upload, although they've Always periodically shut down, and actually paying for a service that allows them to download things illegally, and then of course there's you know physical forms of piracy as well, and buying DVDs and that kind of thing. And and so the law necessarily has to be quite complex, and it's in its response. Um, That's not to say that I think it is any more legal to be in a closed community sharing things that don't belong to you. Or oh, as opposed to downloading from a from a, a paid posting site, um, but nonetheless. The problem becomes that all of, well, a lot of these techniques of sharing are not exclusively for that point. And so therefore you get a similar issue like you did with VHS, in that actually this technology doesn't only have this potential, but it does have this potential. And so file sharing is quite often used for sharing content that does belong to people. And you can't... Get rid of a, a, an internet protocol type of a system in order to legislate against piracy, but then also you can't tell what people are doing, which is why you have these kind of responses that if people uh, have a certain level of activity on their on their accounts according to their internet service provider. Um, so in the UK, the people like Virgin or Sky, etc. Um, that you kind of you cap them if they use too much but then of course you know one of the I think one of the most popular sites certainly in the UK is BBC iPlayer and actually that involves using huge amounts of bandwidth and, and so you know there's loads of energy going back and forth. And, and so it's, it's very difficult to actually work out what people are doing and, and how they're doing it. And, and so, I mean, I'm not certainly not a legal expert, but
0: actually finding out what people are doing is, is hard enough. In and itself, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I was interested in your mentioning that in classes you discuss these things with your students pretty openly. Mm-hmm. And they share illegal activity that engage them. In, in yeah. the United States, there are lots of spies in classrooms. The major intellectual property holders pay students to spy on other students and faculty, uh, in the same way that the FBI and, and the CIA recruit in universities, the same way MI5 and MI6 recruit in universities in Britain. So I'm surprised that there aren't s- corporate spies paid to engage in surveillance Mm. of such discussions and identify people who uh, could be caught?
1: Well, maybe there are. It's it's always possible that, uh, you know, if they're doing their job well as being spies, then... I wouldn't know, would I? Um, <laughs> but, well, you might some of your know. students have been arrested. It's possible. They, I, I don't know. It's, an, it's, it's a very interesting one. I mean, certainly, if anything, I would expect them to think I was a spy because, you know, in the classroom, I'm you know, the authority figure, I suppose. Certainly when I was doing my research, the file sharers I was talking to did assume I was a spy. They did assume that I had been employed by one of the major Hollywood studios to go and find out what they were doing. And actually, that that became very interesting because then they had these very long discussions on who I was, why I was there, could I prove what I, you know, what I was doing.
0: How do you prove you were not employed by something?
1: Yeah, exactly. How do you
0: prove you're not something?
1: No, well, I mean, I I, I gave why because I was doing my PhD at the time. That was at Goldsmiths, and so I, I I'm on their web page, and I'll, you know, it says what my research is about. But then anyone could, you know, just go to Goldsmiths you and say I need to pretend that this person works here in order
0: to well, you facilitate could, uh, be doing the research. For being funded by the Record um, uh, Association of America. Exactly. But Recording
1: actually. Recording
0: Industry Association yeah.
1: of um, But actually, I mean I'm maybe the situation is very, very different in the States and, and I don't know. But certainly my students don't don't seem at all concerned. Um, but they also Quite often, and this is something that other people have found in, in research in this area, is that they feel almost justified in their behaviour. Because they sort of say, well, I've, I paid 20 quid to see this in the Odeon Leicester Square. I paid again to see the 3D version, I paid um, to buy the DVD. So if I go on holiday and I don't have the DVD with me, then I will, I'll just download it. because." I've already paid for this this is mine so uh,
0: that's an interesting point mm,
1: because and in a way I think as as we move to a a a situation where possibly our understanding of property is virtual and also the the understanding of property of becomes you know that that you have something that is multi-platform that actually if I buy a Blu-ray of something I should also be able to watch it on a DVD player and I should also be able to download it from Ultraviolet or whatever the new system is, and it should exist in the cloud, and I should have access to it permanently. And, and so at the same time that we're trying to be persuaded to to pay for content in lots of different levels. We're also, at least certainly my students are reacting against that by saying, but I've paid once.
0: Uh, Sure. Well, I think lots of institutions are moving this way and that over such arrangements. There are some magazines where you can buy a subscription that gets you various different forms. Mm. And some magazines are moving in the opposite direction Mm. they're separating them. The ultraviolet version is interesting because that allows you to edit. Wow, oh, it does really it. I changed lots of things. This is one of the properties. Mm. So, mm. Could I get? can I add something to? You can I'd add anything think. you like. Yeah. I'd love a couple of black mm. tea. Of course. Just English, English, English breakfast. Yeah. 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 And that tension is quite interesting because it takes you back to the days of the VHS uh, world mm. and the way in which people used to rent videos and then after the credits had finished mm-hmm. at the end of the movie, add messages, mm-hmm. add material, add pornography, mm-hmm. all kinds of things that then became quite interesting alternative bits of cultural production that mm-hmm. came to you when you rented a VHS yeah. of a television programme or a film. Mm-hmm. So these things open themselves up to additional commentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess the other factor of course is the Distinctions between streaming and downloading. Mm. How those distinctions would play out, what people's preferences are. In mean, the United States, people aren't very interested in downloading,
1: mm.
0: they never really took it up much. No. It's more a streaming yeah. world. And then you get the you know, those studios who are trying to become direct distributors of this stuff yeah. in a virtual sphere.
1: Yeah. But relatively late in the game, oddly enough. And I think, certainly, and I think, that's why I see it with my students as well, it's like, there's still, for a lot of people, certainly in this country and again it may be different in the states and elsewhere but there isn't that much opportunity to get hold of the content that you want in the way that you want to I mean. and so there isn't uh, there's services like uh love film instant and uh netflix has not, uh, quite recently come to the uk where you can stream movies um and it's a subscription model but there's lots of content that's not available or it's available much, much, much later than it would be in any other way. And so certainly when having these discussions with my students, there again seems to be like, well, there isn't a direct alternative to to pirating material, there isn't a service that's cheap and affordable where I can just download something or stream it straight away. For
0: example, a television program, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I mean, like on Netflix, there's there's loads of things, but if you took something like The American Office or something like that, it goes up to, I don't know, I think there's nine seasons or something, whereas on Netflix, you can get up to five. So there's this, this time lag, whereas actually in a world where... Arguably, we want things quicker and faster. That time lag is is not acceptable to people, as it were. And so, therefore, there's still not quite this equivalence between the services being offered. So, even though there's more opportunity now to stream and download things online legally, there's still not. It's,
0: it's not quite up with demand. You're still no, possibly, possibly. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. What about as applied away from? these forms of media and into areas like writing, where downloading is very cheap and very quick and very easy, and that has a lot of implications for scholars like yourself. Who is Virginia Crisp? Who wrote this article? Who wrote this book? who had this thought, mm. who gets acknowledged for this by students, mm. administrators, governments, funding agencies.
1: I mean, it, it, that's interesting because mm. the other sort of area of interest of mine is just, what it's like being an early career researcher and and so what often interests me is the fact that most of the people I know who are at my, my level of their careers are never expected to make any money at all out of anything that they write or publish um, and it's almost an acceptance of that, of that concept, whether that's a huge shift or not I'm not entirely sure but therefore, most of the people that I know are interested in actually getting their material published as widely as possible um, in the more accessible ways, in the ways they're actually going to be accessible to undergraduates um, and people to read their work. So really the concern is accessibility. Um, But then of course this leaves a big hole where you go, well... When are you going to do this work? Who's going to pay you to do this work? If you're going to do this research and you're going to write it up, when's that going to happen if no one There's at no point any any method of monetizing it. And really, what you want is free access. And also, certainly in the UK, there's the tension, I imagine this is similar elsewhere, it's not just good enough to publish, you need to publish in the right place. And obviously, publishing in the right place tends to still involve some element of print or um, older publishers, and certainly not open access publishing in the way that we might imagine. And if anything, the books that, you know, we write are getting more and more expensive and certainly, again, I don't know if this is representative, but my students wouldn't expect to be buying those books because they're paying... Thank you very much, much sir. I
0: greatly appreciated.
1: Because uh, they're paying nine grand a year and, and this is a, a relatively new regime um, although fees have been around in this country for about, I think, 11, years, 12 years something like that And obviously, it's very different in the States, where people pay uh, an absolute fortune to go to university, Um, because the intake of students in September
0: started. Fine, I've got one actually. You've already got your own. Got my own little
1: little biscuit. Yes. There is a a difference in their expectation of what should should be provided, and so to a certain extent, this does impact on the on the publishing side of things as
0: well. Just taking you back, can you uh, define early career researcher for me? Because some level, I get it immediately. It's a good description, Uh, but I'm not. I've needed to know when it begins and ends.
1: It's really interesting, and it means different things depending on who you're asking. Um, Uh uh And in many respects, it. means, different things in relation to what funding body you're applying for a grant for in the UK. So I believe it's probably, and I don't know it's history, but I believe it's come about because you can't call people young researchers because that would be uh, discriminatory. Uh, So it's the idea that you're doing your PhD or within three to five years of it generally. Um, And the rules related to that have changed because there are various... um, Grants that you can apply to um, funding bodies like the Arts and Humanities Research Council, the British wow. Council. Uh, in this country, where you, they will have different definitions of what's early career. Sure. Just
0: as notions of youth mm. vary from time and place. Yeah. But exactly. no, I get it. So essentially, this is graduate students and people who, if they were such a system, would be doing postdoctoral fellowships. Film
1: yes. Films. Yep. That's
0: essentially the Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and roughly speaking, it's within
0: sort of five years. Of doing right. your five and making certain opportunities limited. Mm. especially available to them yes. when they're less likely <laughs> to be able to avail themselves of open opportunities that get dominated by mm. the elderly wizened hegemones yeah.
1: and some of the opportunities and this is where there's a, an interesting break, some of the opportunities are only open to people who have academic posts already and so to a certain extent that's quite yeah. limiting so that applies to people like me who are lucky yeah. enough to actually have uh, a yeah. lectureship um, And not to people who are hourly paid lecturers, which is much more dominant. There are some funds that are available only if you do not have an academic post already, Um, but really that sort of funding is, is much more much much more difficult to, to get because there are so many people who've now got PhDs and not got employment which is obviously quite hard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So getting back if I could to the piracy thing for a moment I'd like to get on to other things that interest you. I don't want to tie you just to this. <laughs> One of the things that interests me is that again understanding that the word is under erasure and is problematic, both in its romantic and its pejorative sense. It? Is that it makes Students, faculty, members of the general public, think and talk about copyright and intellectual property in ways that fascinated a tiny number of us a long time ago, and that would make everybody else turn off board and yeah. say, don't be so blokey, or... That's just nerdy. Now everybody claims to know about and has an opinion about this, mm. including people like me, who in fact know bugger all. But lots what of us think consent? we care or think mm. we know about this and do care about this. Hello. like well, it. Huh?
1: Mm. I mean, I think it's
0: it, it, it's a fascinating change. It, it, is, to it is. It
1: is. And and
0: your PhD, might was your PhD on this? Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. We said it. Was, sorry. Might once have been esoteric. No one's interested. You mention it in a bar, and everybody goes running for the toilets. Or to have mm. a cigarette. Now, people are actually <laughs> interested in this thing mm. that you've made central to your research, aren't
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, even when I started it, there wasn't that much written about it, which sort of surprised me. But equally, it's, um, I think at the time, it's, I don't know, it became sexy somehow, and I really got no idea. <laughs> No idea why, because it's it's tied to computer culture, it's tied to geek culture, it's tied to things that I find really exciting, but that yes, normally makes other people glaze over. Um, Like if you start talking about how many frames a second the Hobbit's filmed in, then people go, really? (laughs) That doesn't matter. But um, it has become really interesting, but it also I think is important because it allows people to consider who does own things. I mean, actually, I'm interested in piracy, but, but really, I'm interested more broadly in dissemination and distribution. And so, my interest in piracy stems from, act, you know, ideas about access: who has, you know, who are the gatekeepers who allow us to access certain things, who persuade us to access certain things rather than other things. And um, but I think, you know, film distribution is not sexy um, in terms of, you know, research topics. Um, it becomes interesting I think because there's that kind of vaguely um, transgressive illegal element of the piracy. But really I think it's the reason it's important is because it makes us think about or makes us question why certain monopolies exist, why certain companies own so much and how they manage to continue that ownership down various value chains,
0: if you see what I mean. So My question, (laughs) your starter for (laughs) ten, you know. My question in this is, does this have further implication not only of making sexy and exciting something which hitherto was nerdy, even though we wouldn't have used that word until. Precisely, <laughs> intellectual property became non-nerdy. Yeah, I Nerdy became a concept that was popular around the same time as IP did. Yeah. Does this also lead, in your experience, to a problematization of private property? Uh, let me give you a, for instance. I'm fascinated by the way in which. EULAs, end-user licensing agreements that require consumers of online video games not only to contract to pay money to the corporations that own the games, but to sign away their own intellectual property to the moves and the avatars and yep. the ideas they come up with. This is an astonishing rip-off. Mm. And I'm interested that there's a lot of anger on the part of players mm. against this, and I wonder whether that's an example where people might start to say, maybe you corporate property really sucks as a concept mm. and might that lead to a broader political consciousness mm. or is it very restricted to think? I think I think there's a couple of ways of approaching
1: that. I mean, it's similar to the the Instagram drama that's been in the papers over the last couple of days. Yeah, could you tell people a
0: bit about that? Instagram now owned by our friends at the F1. Right. Um,
1: and I I've actually, to be fair, just picked yeah. up the article in the Metro this morning, so my
0: my assessment. Jones, and, uh, <laughs> on the road, on all fours, getting your paws dirty, finding yep. out what the average woman on the bus is thinking. That's
1: exactly. um, good. But pretty much the Instagrams. Are Situation is, and I believe they've gone back on it in the space of 24 hours. Is that they basically said that anyone who joins or doesn't leave within the next month will have all the images that they've uploaded to their Instagram account uh, potentially used for um, Instagram to sell for advertising. And, you know, they've gone back in 24 hours because of the big drama about this. Um, and interestingly, some of the, the, the sort of tweeting I've seen about this as pointed out the the irony of this, I suppose, but the fact that lots of day-to-day individuals who would happily steal things by downloading them online are now suddenly upset when it's their property. And I think
0: this is why... The That's whole the paradox you started out with. Yeah, uh, because, it's, it's,
1: because most of us are used to the idea that things are broadcast to us, that they are not our property. And what's really changed is we... Our proprietor relationship with things was to do with tangible physical items that we had not created in production but we had, we were owned and we put on shelves. Whereas the difference is that now there's more scope for people to interact and create. And the more that people interact and create and share, such as the Instagram example, the more people start to question, well, why should somebody else own this? Um, and so I think it. it it opens up this kind of change in the way that we see ownership and not just corporate ownership but I think we got used to the idea for a long time that things were owned <laughs> by other people and in a way that, that, that situation is maintained if, if anything streaming from the cloud is exactly that the stuff's all owned by someone else and we, we just have access rights to it so if anything that situation is heightened but we all accept the idea that um most of us are largely sort of consumers rather than producers. And what, um, certainly with the ultraviolet example, allowing you to edit things, and YouTube now has an, an edit function, and, and so does Vimeo and stuff like that. So the more that we're able to actually manipulate things the more we feel ownership. And the more we feel ownership, the more we realise we don't have any ownership. And that it doesn't matter what we remix and what we edit, we still don't own it. And so certainly with the far show, as I was looking at, they did edit things. They would uh, take two different versions of film from two different countries that had two different cuts and spliced it together to make a, a definitive version. They would add subtitles, they would change the grading of the film, they would recompress it. And, you know, they would do all sorts of technological things to make the film they felt better. And then they would share it and they would produce alternative front covers and do all sorts of, you know, quote-unquote, creative activities. Um, and therefore they felt ownership. They felt that they owned this. Uh, even to the extent that when people took their versions and started selling them on eBay as pirated DVDs, they then were like, well, we have to shut this person out of our community. They're taking our property. And I think this is why... The truth is, we don't... OK. OK nice little jolt, jolt of music there. We don't own things, regardless of the whole idea about participation culture and web 2.0 and all this kind of stuff, we don't own any more than we did before. But what we do feel is aggrieved at our lack of ownership, and therefore this links back to what you're saying about the questioning corporate ownership, corporate ownership, Thing that people are increasingly, as they are, encouraged to participate, and that that participation is then co-opted by Instagram or by Facebook or, or by all these companies, YouTube, etc., to, to promote other things and to, to maintain these large um, monopolies or oligopolies. That we we feel aggrieved by, it. and I think, oddly enough, sometimes the way that people feel that they can react against that is therefore to take DVDs for free or whatever, you know, and that's not you know, just you know it's not necessarily morally justifiable, but it's, it's one of the kind of justifications that people use, certainly in relation to the music industry, is that this is a big greedy industry and. I don't really care what happens to them. Which is which is problematic because actually within any big greedy industry there's lots of people working to make a living. And that's not necessarily just the artists who wrote the music and called it, it's the whole infrastructure of of an entire sort of sector of the creative industries that you know may or not be going may not may or may not be going down the path.
0: Possibly or not really. So, can I ask you what sorts of theoretical forms and methodological norms allow you to think through these things? Your analysis seems very uh, multivariate, very interesting. I just wonder uh, how you've gone about constructing, making, manufacturing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's... I, yeah, I probably had the most trouble with uh, pinpointing what kind of theoretical position I was coming from, um, and what I ended up discussing a lot in terms of the actual groups of people I was looking at, which were both small distribution companies and um, online file sharing communities. Was actually to do with ideas of. Um, uh, of of cultural and quite a lot uh, and um, and I do see power really in some respects and, and how certain um, certainly within the online communities various uh, sort of power games were used to maintain sort of, control in certain situations um, methodologically, um I adopted a kind of virtual ethnography approach, broadly speaking. I had I'd always hoped to to employ a kind of ethnographic approach to the professional distribution companies as well. But actually, one thing I haven't mentioned, which is relatively significant, is that my particular case study was the distribution of East Asian cinema. And so what I was originally looking at was um, the what was a UK distributor, Tartan, who are now owned by the media asset fund Palisades. Uh, Tartan uh, didn't specialise in East, East Asian film, but they, they, they did have a very controversial label called Tartan Asia Extreme. And and so I was particularly interested in the distribution of that type of film. And so um, the, the idea was that I hoped to go and and actually work in the distribution company and experience it inside but they they went into liquidation and i just started my research so uh, I had to choose alternative um, ways of doing things so what I ended up doing was interviewing an awful lot of ex-employees at their new jobs in wherever they'd ended up uh, going which was mainly still in distribution obviously enough in in the UK Um, and so there there were kind of two approaches one was um interviews with people, um, and the other was, I think, God, must have been four or five years of sort of virtual ethnography in these forums, and to be honest, they were forums that I was um, aware of anyway, but they were very closed forums, they were invite-only forums, Um, so I had to be part of various communities, farm-sharing communities generally, beforehand, in order to gain access and all this kind of stuff so um, that was kind of
0: methodologically where I was coming from yeah yeah, that's fascinating so we've got about a quarter of an hour twenty minutes left I wonder if we could move on perhaps to chat about what you see in the future
1: in the future of me or in the future of something else
0: yes and yes
1: okay well well I've got various sort of things going on at the moment. Um, One thing uh, is a series of conferences that I've been running uh, with um, someone I did my PhD with called uh, Gabriel uh, Minotti, and uh, he has just left the UK and got back to Brazil today, in fact. uh, But over the last two years, we've been running a, a couple of conferences called Besides the Screen, which have been at uh, Goldsmiths uh, because that's where we're both doing our PhDs. The plan is to take the next version of that conference and hopefully have it in Brazil um, once Gabriel's back the there and it's sorted and makes us some contacts again, hopefully, finds himself a job. And I'm also sort of looking at developing that the size screen into a more kind of concrete network because there have been a couple of people who are sort of maintained, come back to both of the conferences and we hope to have more of a, a regular series of events connected to that. Um, And also, I mean, I think in terms of where my research is going, I'm becoming a bit more interested in in exhibition more than distribution. But actually, I wonder in my head whether that's a bit of a red herring I've put for myself, that actually really what I'm starting to think about is how the film, how film consumption is changing sort of post digital, don't like that particular phrase. But in terms of the idea there's in particular there's a there's a cinema in London, I don't know if you know it, called Prince Charles, which is off Leicester Square and and they do these film scroll showings um, that are sing-alongs, which sing-alongs have been around for a long time, uh, but also quote-alongs. They do a masquerade ball for the film Labyrinth, uh, the 80s kids' film with David Bowie, uh, where people dress up and have a, as a, you know, as if they're going to a mask ball and then watch the film. And, and there are all these really interesting kind of experiential events. And also there's things like uh, secret cinema, which for people who don't know, is um, you, you buy a ticket and it might cost you 30 or 40 quid, you don't necessarily know what the film is, but then the film will be shown in a really interesting setting. And um, it's quite crazy in here, people playing table football really loudly. Um, and so there's all these different forms that i you know. I'm sure other people have got different terms for it that I might call experiential cinema, where it's all about... That the event—it's not necessarily about the film. It's about the associated activities and the, the social life of it. And this, I'm kind of connecting in a way to the change in the presentation of tangible DVDs, CDs, and um, and games as well. In terms of that, it's very rare that you get. Actually, no, rare, rare takes it a bit too far but there are, there are many instances of games, and DVDs and Blu-rays and, and books etc that come with associated things, you know a book might come with a CD or um, uh, a DVD might come with a model or or the DVD itself will come with so many extras and so many booklets, or so it might be shape beautifully or whatever. So what I'm interested in is that kind of transformation of the tangible manifestations of film. If you see what I mean, and how it always is a reaction against the kind of the, the fact that everything's becoming virtual, it lives in the cloud, etc. And actually, so therefore there's a reaction against this. There's certain sections of society. Things.
0: These people here are playing table football as you mentioned. Mm. They're probably people who yes! five years ago would only have been interested in games on the screen. Mm.
1: Yeah. There's this sort of return and it's almost a fetishization of, of yeah, retro and vintage and all this kind of stuff. I mean I've got a friend who's moved to to Wellington, actually, she writes about um, retro uh, interior design things like that. And I think it's it, it's very, very interesting because there is this definite return. I mean, certainly in the music industry, it's all about obviously because there has to be some way of monetizing things. It's all about going to gigs, and all these old bands have to reform because they can't make money out of CD sales anymore. So, this idea that there has to be this kind of return to relatively. Oh <laughs> my- sort of nostalgic return to some fabled time whenever we got together and did things, instead of just all watching things on the screen, which, of course, I'm assuming never really existed, but um, we all have to sort of buy into it like, you know, everyone buys it Christmas, I suppose.
0: So, without wishing to give away trade secrets, could you tell us a bit about Beside the Screen, yeah. the conferences and the idea of the network?
1: Well, Beside the Screen is almost necessarily a bit woolly um, which we're trying to work on um, but um, we it was one of those things where we decided on the name before we decided on what we were doing and it was a, it was a serious mistake but essentially we're looking at the, the some processes of film and cinema that exist beyond the way we normally engage with them. And so in, in, in some respects it's a response to film studies and the way that film studies, even though things have changed, are, is still quite interested in the text and the, as, as definitely a primary source of value and interpretation and understanding. Um, and so what we're interested in is the the quite basic things in terms of you know how is the text distributed, how is it exhibited, how is it consumed, um, but also yeah, how is it archived, how is it remixed? How is it played with? How is it developing? And so the science screen becomes almost unnecessarily bulky um, in, in some respects but, but what we have been trying to do is, is therefore connect people like me who are working on piracy with other people who are working on archiving or, or people who are working on uh, uh, exhibition things like that or, or marketing and things like that because especially when you consider something like distribution, uh, film distribution is obviously intimately connected to marketing. Marketing is an integral process. Obviously marketing certainly in Hollywood terms is an integral process part of production as well. But I suppose what we felt and uh, was that a lot of these things were happening kind of in isolation. There's loads of interesting work being done um, and certainly you know more established academics like yourself all feeding away doing fantastic things but it's about getting a kind of a new generation of researchers to communicate with one another about these kind of divergent areas considering sort of media consumption and distribution. And it, yeah, it's unnecessarily a bit woolly, but... No,
0: not at all. Uh, and I love the idea of coming up with the name before you know what it signifies. <laughs> yeah, that was... A, um, I wouldn't necessarily advocate
1: it as a fan. Why not? Why not?
0: As you imply, it enables flexibility and it says something that catches the attention and then you can fill in the meaning as you will. Good, okay,
1: good win for something.
0: Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm,
0: I'm, I, I don't know, there are four players at each table and all four seems to jump in here happily as
1: one. Yeah.
0: I don't see how that works, really. I guess they've gone on to a collaborative rather than competitive footing. That's more relevantly, they've just left the table to go and get another drink. Yeah, <laughs> which is probably quite useful for us. So quickly, we yeah. have a moment. When the folkloric music is dimmed, <laughs> when the short skirts and undone top shirts are moved on. OK. Well, in
1: which case, besides the screen, I think the yeah. interesting thing um, <laughs> that we constantly find is that people interpret it in different ways. I mean, some people quite literally think about it in terms of something that's actually next to the screen screen in the kind of like what you know what what stuff do we have in the rooms where we watch things. Um, whereas other people imagine that we're saying it in almost a, a relatively rude offhand ways, you know. Besides the screen, what is there, you know, what else is there going on? And um, and so it's been quite interesting watching the the interpretations that other people have had. And also by by not saying that we're interested in sort of cinema exhibition, for instance, we get interesting papers that, for instance, look at how um it was an interesting PhD researcher who from or, uh, I'm going to forget now. Ulster, I think. Um, who had been working with a team of researchers there who had done some research and created a documentary about um, prisons in Northern Ireland uh, sorry, not Northern Ireland um, and um, and they'd actually exhibited the the films themselves inside various prison cells and the difference that this made to the kind of experience of watching documentaries. and so Having this kind of, removing the question from being about cinema or about film, as we kind of traditionally understand it, allowed for lots of very, very different sort of discussions to go on, which is great. Um, But um, I need a slight rest before organising another conference, it tends to take it out of me a
0: little bit, so.
1: But yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much where things are going next.
0: Absolutely. Well, we're being invaded by more and more football tables. So you
1: would have
0: thought it was the middle of the afternoon. Actually, no.
1: no I'm astonished. The British get
0: drunk all day, all night, yeah. and every day. But yeah. big time now that it's close to some people call Christmas. Yeah. Any alibis? Isn't it? It someone, hey, who, someone. I don't know when people work in this country. I think the I think they work so hard in the week that they just go insane yeah. So I mean, Thursday at 2 p.m.
1: Thursday, they say is the new. <laughs> Friday. But someone told me an interesting thing once, I have no idea if it is true, but someone said to me that the English, when they go out after work, they go out, for. they say they're going for a drink, and they have many drinks, whereas the Americans say, do you want to go for drinks and have one? <laughs> Which I love,
0: but um, yeah, complicated relationship of synecdoche to metonymy. No one's ever been able, satisfactorily to distinguish these semiotic concepts, but perhaps you just have.
1: Well, I can't take credit for that. I can't remember who who said that, but I, I just particularly love, love that idea of cultural difference.
0: Well, listen, given all this noise, I've got one last question, but I also want you to feel free to add anything you'd like. Okay. And my last question is really a lot. I'm asking you to jump forward say 10 years. Will there be a thing called media and cultural studies? You were saying that's where you currently hang your shingle.
1: That's the name of the degree. Um I don't know. I wonder I wonder in some respects about media and cultural studies. Own. I feel in a way that media and cultural studies is a term has been created certainly in this country anyway, and it may be different elsewhere, As a way of giving life to cultural studies, which doesn't exist as a concept that much outside of universities, and remove the stigma of media studies, which certainly in this country has um, unnecessary associations with being easy and pointless. I think it's oh, yeah. the university system in this country. The humanities are generally considered to be under attack, and I think
0: you could broadly put people in that arena. She's, and she's struggling with this, but she's not giving in. Her no, face is betraying the pressure being exacted it's, it's by also hot in our fellow residents. Oh, well, yes, I've only got one shirt. No,
1: I know. I, I wear a scarf oh, all the time.
0: Oh, Anyone okay. who knows me, so oh, no, you know
1: But if, I don't, I don't know, I imagine those of us who work and would broadly associate ourselves with media and cultural studies now will probably be doing a pretty similar avenue of research in five or 10 years' time. Whether the discipline exists as a named thing in universities or not, I don't know. I think the research will continue, but whether it continues under a different name or not, I'm unsure. And I imagine it will probably end up getting called something else because of competing priorities of how to attract students and you know, how to attract grant funding and all this kind of stuff when certain associations are considered unpalatable. I don't know the answer to this.
0: So by the time you are a mid-career researcher, yeah still be relevant
1: I think it's possible I mean certainly I've seen colleagues who work in, in history or um, English have their subject areas kind of absorbed into other subject areas. And so,
0: I wouldn't be particularly surprised if that didn't
1: happen to Medial Culture Studies as well. If if anyone can say that Medial Culture Studies really exists as a solid concept anyway, it's a very broad, that helpful. Perhaps
0: everyone will be teaching in the Besides the screen,
1: yeah. Well, I think that's that's quite unlikely that anyone's going to go with besides the screen. But I think besides the screen has a similar sort of issue with it to uh, media culture studies that actually if people interpret it in different ways. It, it means different things. They constantly argue. Well, people like don't constantly argue about what besides the screen means, but they're sort of necessarily
0: kind of ambivalent. But definitely, I if the on, definitely. The crowd <laughs> acclaim with which they've greeted Virginia's latest you know pronouncement. And yes, again, this crowd cannot be contained. No, thank you so much for joining no, us. Exactly. Let's do this again, somewhere perhaps next time, a wee bit quieter than my choice this time.
1: Well, I, I think the choice is fine.
0: Um,
1: we just didn't realise uh, the drinking habits of the British, I think. That's
0: nor did we understand the incredible acclaim with which your thoughts would be made. Yeah! Thank you so much, it was great to meet you and great to talk Thank you very much.